Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm your host, Nathan Oblack, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Joe Boot and Ryan Aris. And we're here today broadcasting from the Knox Cellar uh, at the Ezra Farmstead in Grimsby, Ontario. And just before we get into our content for the day, we wanted to take this time to thank our donors for purchasing us some brand new recording equipment. And we hope that you notice the sound quality improved on today's episode. And the first thing we hope to talk about today is the Niagara 2020 Declaration. This is a document that Dr. Joe Boot has been working on for some time uh, with the help of some other pastors, and that document has just gone uh, public as of last week. So we'd like to hear from you, Joe, a little bit about this document and perhaps uh, why it's necessary at this time. Sure. Thanks, Nathan. So, yes, a few weeks ago, we had a bit of a summit meeting here in Niagara um, at the Ezra Institute with some pastors, uh, some lawyers, and some politicians. And we were talking about basically the uh, a series of significant threats to the freedom and liberty of Christian people and uh, of the church. And as we discussed those, we were seeking to come up with various ways in which we could respond proactively, you know, so rather than being always on the back foot. How could we get in some of these issues onto the front foot? And I know that uh, perhaps in another episode, we'll be talking about um, what was formerly called Bill C-8. And so some of these things were being discussed, as well as the sort of indefinite uh, um, emergency powers and lockdowns that we've experienced and the ongoing uh, issues there. So as we talked about those, one of the ideas was that we uh, should have some kind of a declaration from Christians. So um, I brought that recommendation to the uh, to the table, and it was warmly received. And so I was tasked with going to draft uh, the Niagara Declaration. And uh, I consulted with several others, in fact, especially uh, Dr. Aaron Rock, who uh, together we, as you know, headed the reopen the Ontario churches campaign. And then uh, Dr. Mike Thiessen, um, Mr. Andre Schutten of ARPA, who's a fellow of the Ezra Institute, he's a lawyer, and um, a colleague of mine actually in the UK, uh, Pavel, who's also heads up uh, a legal team at the Christian Legal Centre in London in England. So I consulted with them and collaborated on our final version, and it went public um, back at the weekend. So that's how it came about. Mm, great. Thank you for that, Joe. Joe, I just want to draw out a little bit more about uh, some of the some of the context, not just surrounding the the decision to create this document, but what's been what's been going on in the culture that to, that made you that stimulated us to think, well, why why now? Uh, so we keep we keep being told that we're in unprecedented times. It's it's one of the Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, favorite phrases these days, uh, but. In drafting this declaration, I know that you actually made made reference to some significant historical documents. Like there are, there is actually precedent for the kind of content that's in here. Can you just talk about the historic precedent for the Niagara Twenty Twenty Declaration? Sure. 
So there have been, you know, various times in the history of the church where Christians have felt it necessary to draft declarations or publish theses, and perhaps uh, Martin Luther's nailing some up at Wittenberg um, was uh, was an important one. Uh, that was to do with uh, fundamentally um, dealing with corruption, actually, within the church. And of course, at that time, church and state were so wed together that these things came with the force of the state as well. So that resistance um, was interpreted also as political. And eventually, as you know, um, the Reformation is birthed and you eventually have uh, Protestant nations and, and Catholic nations uh, depending on which side of the Reformation they came down on. So the notion that you can have this sort of narrowly theological discussion when you make a confessional uh, statement about Christ, about the truth of Scripture, about the calling and mission of the church and the nature of the church, which of course was partly what Luther was talking about, the notion that um, those things don't have or can be in this narrow silo, sort of a theological discussion silo, and don't have wider socio-cultural politi political implications, we know from history there um, uh, isn't true. Of course, we can go back, I refer in the um, document to Magna Carta, presented to King John, and some of the foundations of Western political liberty there in Magna Carta. I also refer to uh, not just the parliamentary tradition, but to the Canadian Charter, and of course to our head of state, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and her coronation oath in 1953. Uh, so the we're not just saying, look, here's what the Bible says, so there. We're also saying, here's what Scripture says. Here have been the implications of what Scripture has said for Christians and how that's been fleshed out, how that has uh, found expression in human documents uh, about liberty and freedom, and then what can we deduce from those for ourselves today? And my mind was also cast back when I was preparing this to the Barman Declaration, uh, which was put together in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. Of course, Bonhoeffer was involved. Um, Karl Barth, uh, I think, was involved. Um, and their concern was there to resist the Nazification of the church by the state. And they were also wrestling with uh, a problem of church-state relationship with the Lutheran church and the way in which that state church uh, was being at that time controlled, manipulated, uh, or it was an attempt to control and manipulate it by the Fuhrer. And so there were faithful Protestants there who said, no, uh, the church is not going to be controlled and manipulated. The church is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So these liberties have at different times been restated, whether it's back at um, in the 13th century or in the, uh, in the 15th century, 16th century, or then uh, at the um, English Revolution, of course, uh, and, and the Civil War there. Um, uh, or uh, even right forward into the 20th century with things like the Barman Declaration. Now, of course, we don't have the pretensions that we're doing anything as significant as these people were engaged in. We don't know how significant what we're doing will be. That's for God to determine. But we are wanting to draw with this declaration uh, a line in the sand, historically and culturally, as our forebears have done, to say we declare again the freedoms and liberties of the church that have come been given to us 
in Scripture and uh, which have been bequeathed to us by our forebears as deduced from Scripture. And we're deducing the following articles from history and tradition, uh, Scripture and tradition. And Joe, you referred back to some of our documents that we're we're saying we need to go back to those. And I'm thinking of our motto here in Canada, which is Amare Usc Ad Mare, which is Latin for from sea to sea. And that's taken from Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Um, this is uh, an expression that's in our coat of arms. It's uh, engraved in stone above center block as you walk into the parliament buildings. Uh, this is a, a significant part of our history and our confederacy as a nation. And uh, just doing a bit of research for the podcast, this was actually new information to me. But uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, our easternmost province, uh, today, the motto of that province is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, it's just interesting. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's very interesting to me. Uh, that as Christians, we're so comfortable with saying Christ is Lord over the church, but but we seem to be very uncomfortable with saying Christ is Lord over the state and the civil government. Um, I'm I'm curious as to why that might be. I don't know, Joe, if you wanted to tackle that. Well, it's a very good question, <laughs> and it's one that I've certainly grappled with and wrestled with, sometimes um, baffled by the response of many Christians to that question, especially when you look at our constitutional history. And I don't know at times whether it's because people are simply ignorant of that constitutional history. Are, are they ignorant of the coronation oath and what our head of state committed to? Are they are they ignorant of Magna Carta? Are, are, they, uh, are they ignorant of the coat of arms of their own country? Um, are they aware of these mottos that have defined us for for generations? Sometimes they are ignorant of it. Sometimes they're not. And I think the question comes down to whether we actually really believe that Jesus is Lord or not. And in the Declaration, uh, there are scripture references quite copiously, actually, both in the preamble and in the first four uh, clauses of the whereas statements. Uh, which refer to specifically the claims of Christ and his authority that are universal and extend over both church and state. Uh, even the Great Commission, when you read it carefully and properly, reminds us Jesus begins the Great Commission in Matthew 28 by reminding his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth uh, is his. And uh, we look throughout scripture, even the Psalms that we sing in our churches uh, and recite, are, declare the kingship of God and the lordship of his Messiah over the nations. And of course, the very beginning of the revelation of John in John uh, in uh, Revelation 1.5 reminds us that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the, the hymn of the early church there in, Ephesians, in Philippians 2 uh, reminds us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 tell us about Christ's authority over all power, dominion, authority, every name that's named in this age and in the one to come. I don't, I don't understand where the lack of clarity is, Nathan, um, on these statements about Christ. And if you go back to Psalm 2, 
or Psalm 110. Psalm 110, I think, is the most uh, referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's about the lordship and the kingship of Christ over the nations, over kings, over governors, over rulers, over all authority. You know, um, you are my son. Um, uh, there's a, I mean, to to read those psalms together, actually, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 is very, very instructive. And I wish Christians would reflect on these things more. I think it's, when you ask why it is, I think it comes back to a problem that we've tried to address many times in different ways, Nathan, as an institute, which is how do we um, avoid the pitfall of truncating the gospel into a very narrow set of affirmations about my personal soul and my personal salvation and my personal going to heaven. And if I can maybe snatch a few brands from the burning and take those a few with me, you know, evangelicalism, much modern evangelicalism has been reduced to something akin to eternal fire insurance rather than a full understanding of the meaning of the kingdom of God. And I don't see how you can have a kingdom unless you have a king uh, and a domain over which the king rules. And the only domain that I can see in scripture over which Christ rules is everything. Uh, all authority, heaven and earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. It's a total rule. It's a total authority. And so I think what tends to happen then is if you push some people who've given this a little bit more thought on it, they will say, Yes, Jesus is king. He's king in my heart. He's king in the kingdom, which is in this future uh, domain. And maybe they'll also admit that God, in general terms, is sovereign over the nations in very general terms. But it doesn't actually land anywhere in their thinking in real life. The claims of Christ frequently then don't land in what does that actually mean for my family? What does that mean for my business? What does that mean for educate the education of my children what does that mean for politics what does it mean for the state now our forebears did actually understand what it meant for the state and that's why we have the coronation oath and and and, and a swearing to um uphold the law and gospel of jesus christ so i think it's to do with the the truncation of the gospel the dualism that's entered into the life of the church and the devaluing of of creation of culture uh, that allows us to sort of privatize and pietize away these statements that Jesus makes about his authority. And, and the consequences of that is, well, righteousness exalts a nation. Um, scripture is clear that the, 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 the people in the nation are blessed that have this God. And if we walk away from him, there are cultural, political, social consequences and it's high time that we as Christians took those seriously again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting as you're talking, Joe, I'm just thinking of as one of the consequences that's quite obvious to me as we've truncated the gospel is now we see a civil government that is heavily intruding into church government, into family government, and even into self-government, and we don't seem to have a problem with it. And I think that's really concerning. Yes, I mean, when we look at uh, the... Uh, various forms of uh, speech codes that have come in in Canada and other parts of the Western world. Many people are not aware that they could spend two years in prison for uh, being deemed to vilify a an identifiable group. 
Um, we're not even aware, in many cases, people aren't even aware that these laws, many Christians are not aware that these laws even exist, that they're even on the statute books. Uh, we will deal in a future episode with with um, what was formerly Bill C-8 and, and the threat that that represents. It's already the case that in Ontario, um, the CAS can seize your children if they don't approve of the way you're responding to their gender and sexuality issues. Uh, these are uh, frightening things, and uh, the uh, way in which things have been handled in the last few months during the uh, lockdown crisis um, uh, in the midst of the so-called pandemic um, have also highlighted again how in the name of public health, the sort of authoritarian and totalitarian reach, the sense that uh, if the state says something's for your benefit and for your good and for your health, well, then woe betide you if you disagree. Uh, and uh, these, are the, these are the kinds of things that we forget that o the only peoples who have ever truly lived in freedom are those that have been influenced by the gospel. Cultures influenced by the gospel is where freedom has, was born, and where it's been nurtured. And it's logical that as we de-Christianize and the gospel loses influence in a society and the claims of Christ, that those very freedoms that the gospel gave to us start to be lost. I just want to park on that, uh, that question of freedom for a second. Uh, something, that, uh, something that you wrote in the introduction to the Niagara Declaration. By the way, uh, that's uh, niagaradeclaration.ca. You can go and, and read it. Uh, you can sign it if you're uh, if you're a qualified um, minister, elder, organization head, uh, office holder. Go and go ahead, please uh, review that, sign it, share it. It would be it'd be a great blessing to get this out as uh, as far and wide as we can. But yeah, Joe, I, I want to uh, like I said, I want to park on this question of freedom because in the in the intro to the statement, you write if the church loses its freedom freedoms will be lost for all. And just because there is so much confusion around this issue and there have been so many competing voices that we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of non-Christians would, uh, would celebrate things like the church losing its charitable status. Uh, and even, even a lot of Christians we've seen during these lockdowns they, they don't seem to have a problem with the state placing restrictions on the church in terms of how many people can worship and what can you do during worship? So maybe before we talk about anything further, can you just explain why a, a free church is good for society at large? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because it goes all the way back to the, in a sense, the birth of the church and the reason that the disciples, the apostles, the early church was persecuted. Uh, we see in, um, uh, Acts chapter 17, at the beginning of Acts 17, that the apostles are accused of declaring uh, that there is another king, Jesus, that they're, they are violating, supposedly, the laws of Caesar by declaring that there is another king. That's what they're accused of. Uh, and um, we notice, actually, that throughout Scripture, throughout the New Newer Testament, for example, when Peter, and I memorized this verse as a child, when, when Peter gets up, I think it's in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and he says, For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. 
in the name of Jesus, he was um, rewording uh, a declaration that had recently been made by Augustus Caesar, which was, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you can be saved in the name Caesar Augustus. So the preaching of the gospel was seen in the early church as uh, inescapably political by the pagan authorities. And that's why they were persecuted. The The Jews had been given for a short time at that time because of a, an edict of Julius Caesar, had been recognized as an official religion temporarily that uh, gave them a, an immunity from having to worship the pagan gods and practice and, and adore the emperor, practice the, you know, the, the emperor cult. But as the Christian church became differentiated from Judaism, and became clearly something distinct, which it wasn't clear to the Romans. You see a lot of the, the interviews that are going on in Acts and a lot of the trials that are going on in the book of Acts are the bemused Roman authorities trying to figure out, is this just a dispute about their law? Is this just a dispute around some internal... And then they, being, Yeah, they think it's some intramural Jewish two different debate, sects. Right, right. And, and they get irritated frequently by this. But it steadily becomes clearer and clearer that this is something distinct, and there is a there is a there is a claim being made here about the lordship of Jesus Christ, kurios, he's lord, and that was seen as incredibly serious, and it led to the persecution of the church because they refused to participate in effectively, to use the modern term, statism, the worship of the state, to to fall to basically offer incense on the altar to Caesar, um, and. This is why this this whole question of the the loss of freedom goes right back there because with the church was birthed the first truly free institution. Right in a slave culture, in a culture where a quarter of the people that you met in the street were slaves, where you had no rights at all unless you were a Roman citizen. And Paul is not afraid to use those rights, by the way, as a as, as a citizen to escape and avoid persecution. Uh, but there were no truly free institutions. Uh, there was no differentiation there in, 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 in cultural life. There was the power, the absolute power and authority of the state. And so the church enters into the scene and creates for all of Western culture an area of freedom and liberty. And you see in the Western world these liberties being asserted again and again. That led to eventually what we today well, would look back on as Christendom or Western culture, especially in what we call the Anglosphere, the Protestant lands in particular, um, and the Anglosphere perhaps most especially, although maybe the Dutch um, would give us a, a run for our money there too in terms of religious freedom historically. Um, but the ties between the the Dutch and the English crown are very close, William of Orange and everything else. Um, it's the same basic tradition. And uh, this, this, this reality of a free church uh, provided eventually a recognition of the freedom of the family under God. And therefore, what we can call mediating institutions between you and state authority, between the individual and the app and the the pagan idea of the absolute power of the state um, being planned and organized by oligarchs and so you have the church and the family is just two we'll use those two for now they're the easiest to talk about and explain um, because of christianity effectively became spheres of sovereignty and authority 
that are mediating institutions between the individual. So I don't stand naked before an all-powerful state, but I ha- but both the family and the church enjoy their own freedom and, and jurisdiction and, and uh, sphere of sovereignty. And that is what Christianity and the church actually gave to us. And if that goes, if the church loses its freedom, what do you think? What do we think is actually going to happen to the freedom of the family and of business and of medicine? We've seen these things collapsing already. State control of medicine, the state control of education, increasingly the the goal uh, of the state to control the family, to tell you what you can teach your children. Um, uh, As I mentioned already, they can be taken away from you if you don't fall in line with the state's uh, doctrines on human sexuality and so on. And uh, it was said to a friend of mine recently, a pastor, just in this last week by um, somebody very concerned about the loss of freedoms, a business person very concerned about the, the loss of freedom for businesses in Ontario right now, not a Christian. He said to this pastor, he said, you, the church, are, are the most potent potentially the most potent group of people who could inspire businesses and professional people to resist. This was this week, to resist. He said, we need more of you to speak out uh, and to and to fight for freedom because people would follow, but they're too afraid. And he said, it seems to me that the churches are the ones who have the strongest influence in our society. And I was amazed by that statement. But there are plenty of non-believers who look at the church and say, well, that is an institution that looks to a higher authority. And that's what I mean when I say that if freedom for the church goes, freedom collapses everywhere, because it's the church that reminds power and authority that there is a power and authority that transcends the state, transcends government, princes, kings, powers, rulers. And that's the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And we certainly see today that in our pluralistic humanistic culture. And we talked about this on our last podcast, but we're continually deferring to the authority of, we were calling them technocrats, which is what C.S. Lewis was warning us about 70 years ago. Um, But if we look at our history, uh, we know that tyranny often brings in authoritarianism in the name of public health with the support of doctors and individuals. And they seem to be the authority structure that we are looking to rather than the church, rather than God's word, rather than uh, a transcendent standard that you talk about. And I, I think we're seeing the implications of that now. Well, I mean, one of the things that we we need to be reminded of um, is uh, the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ is given significant authority in Scripture. Um, you know, just read Ephesians 1 in particular. But then also you can go to Matthew 18, uh, where... Uh, Jesus talks about the authority that's been given to the church. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And I think it would, uh, it, we, we pass over these familiar texts far too quickly and don't meditate on what they actually mean. Uh, he, Christ has been given as, as, as head over everything to the church because we have uh, a calling to speak to power and authority as pillar and support of the truth, uh, to remind all authority and power of whom to, to whom they are answerable. And uh, if we don't do that, we're, we're abandoning um, a critical part of our, of our mandate, and we're handing the, the, the culture over to the technocrats, to the round table of uh, medical professionals, 
And the notion that, um, you know, a medical professional in the, the sphere of computer modeling or epidemiology can somehow make pronouncements upon about the cultural health, about um, the social health, spiritual health, emotional health, and that these are therefore binding edicts for everyone that must bind everybody because the, the you know, the, the, the human health must be about simply avoiding viral material. Uh, this is dangerous. And so if we don't um, talk about the centrality of the gospel and the commission that we're given, remember that commission involves teaching all things I've commanded you. It means laying hands on the sick. I mean, if you can't, um, uh, if you have to social distance, how can you lay hands on a sick person? I mean, uh, and this maybe takes us to, uh, to, to uh, a question I think, Ryan, you wanted to address about uh, Article 8 um, and the, uh, the, the question about what is the, the, the jurisdiction of, of the church in this area as we kind of pick through this um, declaration. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a, there, there will be some, some of the articles. There's 10 articles. Um, there are nine whereas statements, which, which we which are setting up the articles. So um, the whereas statements are really declarations about Christ, his authority, his church, about our um, institutional and constitutional inheritance. So the first four are really about Christ and his sovereignty. Then the next five are about our constitutional inheritance. And then the following 10 articles, which begin with liberty in all spiritual matters, sort of are the deductions that we have that we're declaring to all power and authority about the gospel and about uh, Christ's church. And some of them are a little bit more difficult for some people to swallow than others because of their confusion around this whole area of church-state relation. Are we bound to, are we obliged to obey every edict from every non-elected bureaucrat um, uh, or guideline or even of elected officials, are we are we as God's people bound to that in order to be truly Christian? Yeah, one of the uh, I I did Article Eight here, as you mentioned, it jumps out at me. But one of the things, as I'm reading through some of the these ten articles here, and as I think through this question of like what what is an ideal church state relationship, notice here that all of these articles, or all ten of them. They, they're to do with liberties related to or liberty concerning some area or other. And I think, uh, I think another common misconception, and maybe you can uh, elaborate on this, Joe, is that when we're, we're talking about a, the relationship of the, the state to something, um, we, we tend to expect or believe that the state should be doing something with regard to that, uh, that relationship. But most of most of this here is just uh, just uh, some long ways of saying acknowledge the church as its own sphere, recognize that it has authority in these areas, leave it be to exercise that authority. Is that is that reasonable? Is that yeah, absolutely. We're not uh, in in this uh, declaration. We're not actually saying anything new or original. It's been said for centuries, but it's funny how, as C.S. Lewis once said, if you want to be original, tell the truth. 
uh, and you'll be original without even trying, right? If you're worried about originality, just 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 tell the truth, right? You won't hit it if you're trying to be. Just just tell the truth, and it's remarkable how a simple statement of inherited liberties deduced from scripture and our constitutional life for many people are suddenly somehow controversial. And that shows you the degree to which uh, statism and the political religion of our age, uh, which really is statist, statism. Um, This is why it's impossible to keep politics out of the pulpit, as some Christians demand, because the state has made almost everything political. What are you going to preach on? There's nothing left to preach on if you, if if politics never if you politicize human identity, human sexuality and gender, um, and life, beginning and end of life, and all these things suddenly become issues of politics, then and you're not going to to address those. There's only uh, there's pretty limited about what you what the pastor has got left to speak about. So the the the. The, the thing that the in many respects the, the 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 declaration is doing is pointing out what the apostle Peter told us to 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 pray for it's, de- it's declaring the things that will allow us to um, live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness because that's what we want uh, this is what we are this is what we're taught to pray for that we pray for kings and governors and those in authority so that we could live this these peaceful and godly lives. And that's really what this declaration is about. Here is the church. These are the claims of Jesus Christ. We don't want, we're not asking for an ecclesiocracy. We're not saying the church and its officers must rule the state. Uh, We're saying no such thing. But we're saying the state and its officers don't rule the church. And that, you see, they're very good at talking about the secularists, about church-state separation, until it comes to church-state separation. Right. <laughs> they're, what, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty adamant about church separation. Right. What they want... It goes one way. But precisely. So what they, what they, of course, mean by when they talk about church-state separation is we want God and state separated, which, of course, we deny. Uh, that's impossible. But um, church-state separation historically in uh, in North America, now it's not formally separated in Canada, of course, but there is no official state church here. So it's an informal separation. And in the United States, there is no um, uh, state church. So there is a formal church-state separation there. But the goal of that was never abolish God from the state otherwise the presidential oath of office would never have been taken on the bible or especially on an open bible to deuteronomy 27 28 um what it was saying was is that the state should not establish any particular denomination at the federal level uh that's what it meant in america of course there is a, an established church in england the church of england but with um the glorious revolution in 1688 and then the liberties that followed uh, the the sort of um, persecution of nonconformists was ended so uh what we are asserting in the declaration is almost as simple as you've put it leave us alone the church is under christ's authority and his authority supersedes yours uh and um we actually in the declaration don't go into any sort of diatribe or statement about what even the state is to be 
under God. We st- that that might be a statement in the future, but it's not for now. Uh, it's a declaration about what the church is under God uh, and the liberties that we have inherited because of that. We're reminding civil government of that as a minimum. As a, as, a, as a bare minimum, that's our responsibility. We're not requiring an ecclesiocracy, which is not authorized in Scripture. We are being asked, we are asking, we're declaring, we're not asking, we're declaring the Lordship of Jesus and our freedom in Him so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And we're getting to the end of our time here, guys. So I wonder if there are any last thoughts that we'd like to share in terms of the declaration and what our audience ought to do after listening to some of these thoughts, but uh, go ahead and share that uh, before we sign off. Well, I think one of the things that uh, is, is as, 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 uh, as we sort of go, th- go through this document and people, you know, hopefully our listeners will take the time to go and look at it, niagaradeclaration.ca. One of the, uh, uh, the articles that um, will likely, or at least has, uh, raise more eyebrows than others because of the current circumstance is Article 8, because Article 8 is dealing with liberties related to gatherings for religious worship. Interestingly, the first part of the article is drawn almost entirely from Section 176 um, of the uh, Criminal Code, uh, which protects uniquely gatherings for uh, religious worship. So we're reminding the state about that. And then we talk about the both the church and a just state having an interest in mitigating harm in times of crisis like war and plague, and that the churches can dialogue and work with the civil authorities in such uh, a situation and may temporarily limit their uh, uh, their worship um, without abandoning the prerogative that we have to worship God. And uh, there will be those, and there have been those who've wrestled, uh, struggling a bit with this, because they said, well, but doesn't the state have jurisdiction over the church in this whole area of health and safety? And uh, which, to me, this is an interesting point as well, because all of these sort of modern health and safety regulations and rules are all very, very modern. They're all very, very contemporary, right? these These are 20th and 21st century uh, ideas that the state somehow has to uh, put up signs on the QEW telling you to buckle your seatbelt. Um, uh, the sort of nanny state environment. Um, now, we would all acknowledge, I think, uh, that you know, if you are a church that's meeting in a condemned building, uh, you're in a you're in a church that is that is uh, uh, that is falling down, right? And the local uh, building department uh, f- for the local municipality condemns the building and you know shuts it up and says people shouldn't be in here it's dangerous and then the church decides well we're going to go into there and we're going to hold worship services and then a brick falls on somebody's head well yes the state could and should uh, prosecute for reckless endangerment in that sort of a situation um, that's not what we're denying but the question is, is does the state have a unilateral uh, and uh, exclusive jurisdiction over public health? If the state is qualified by its juridical function, as I think we talked about in our last podcast, that is, it's responsible for public justice. Just on what basis then are we now going to say that people not getting a virus whether it be the flu or the common cold or uh, um, 
COVID-19 or some other virus, that, that the state now has total jurisdiction over human health. Uh, and that is now somehow a matter of public justice. And that's highly problematic. Anybody who wants to argue that? I mean, this and this is we um, and we're suffering because of this idea, because abortion now, as you know, is paid for and funded. It's funded by the state. Uh, doctors are losing their conscience rights because medicine is controlled by the state. Uh, euthanasia made, you know, medical assistance in dying, as you know, is being extended and expanded. That's the state. All these things are done in the name of uh, reproductive health and public health. Uh, just because a government dresses up tyranny under the label of health doesn't make it a matter of public justice or the jurisdiction of the state. And so what we are resisting in this declaration is the notion that you can start bringing in all of these different areas of life under the exclusive jurisdiction of the state. Does the state have an interest in public safety? Yes. Does it have uh, the right to unilaterally, in an unrestricted way, unbalanced by other institutions, govern what public health actually is? to lock up and quarantine healthy people for indefinite periods of time? I would say no. And if anybody wants to challenge that, you show me scripturally where God gives to the state the task of making sure I don't get sick. As far as I'm concerned, scripture says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Nothing about social distancing there. So they lay hands on you. And Jesus' ministry was about healing the sick, and he went around healing the sick and doing good. That's our mandate, not abandoning the elderly in prisons at the end of their life to die alone because the state said we can't visit them. So um, that's what uh, pastors and Christians who object to you know, the Article 8, which is where we've seen some of the little bit of pushback, have got to show. The onus is on them, not us. You show us where it's the ob obligation and jurisdiction of the state to govern and control and rule in the area of health and preventing me from getting a disease. If that's the case, then the logical next step, and this was proposed, as I think you're both aware, by uh, an official in the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization a few months ago, who proposed that uh, um, transmission is now, he, this individual said, uh, not happening at the public level, but in the homes, in people's homes, and maybe we need to reach into the home and take sick children um, and separate sick members of the family into state-run institutions so they can be quarantined there. So which of the pastors and Christians who, who want to give this state unfettered control and object to uh, the church limiting the state in this area of health uh, how many of them would let their children be seized by the state to be taken to a state institution for their safety and their health? These are the issues that we have to wrestle with. And I think this preamble is, again, trying to draw a line to say uh, peaceful, quiet, godly lives. Here you shall go and no further. It's been done many times in history before. We're just having to do it again. Great. Thanks, Joe. And uh, again, we hope that pastors and elders would prayerfully look over this document uh, and and sign on, as uh, I hope you've heard throughout this podcast, that this is a document that's needed and necessary at this time. Uh, Joe, 
Ryan, uh, thanks a lot for this conversation. Uh, if you want to listen to this podcast uh, or find any of our sermons or lectures, any of the resources that the Ezra Institute produces, you can find them all at ezrainstitute.ca. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. We hope you tune in again next week for Worldview Wednesday. Take care now. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time